you would, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. We're at the halfway mark, the Gospel of Matthew. That means we've only got four and a half years left, and we'll be done. This will be exciting. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. We're going to look at uh, the beheading of John the Baptist and the feeding of the 5,000. So we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 21. You can follow along on the screens above, or you can read along in your Bibles. This is Matthew chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Let's take a moment and pray for a time in the Word. Our Father, we come to you as needy people, filled with uh, fear and anxieties, burdened with our sins, needing to hear a word of truth from you, a word of comfort, a word that will strengthen us. So I pray that as your word is preached, as it is spoken, your spirit would move powerfully in the lives of our people, that our hearts would be opened that you would give hope where there is despair, strength where there is weakness, and courage where there is fear. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, called this sermon The Politics of Bread, which I was talking to somebody about that title, and they're like, you're going to talk about politics after Thanksgiving? Like, that's like the number one thing you never talk about. 
And, and we often say that. We say that we don't want Christianity to be political. Right? Christianity should not be political. Now, that's true if by political you mean we shouldn't have pastors stumping for politicians from the pulpit. Um, we shouldn't conflate America with the kingdom of God. That's all true and good. But sometimes what we mean by Christianity should not be political is Christianity should not be public. And if that's what we're saying, that flies against the testimony of the Gospels. Because what we just read are two very public events. We have John the Baptist publicly rebuking a politician for his unlawful marriage. And we have Jesus publicly feeding thousands of people. And not only that, but Jesus Christ is going to be publicly crucified because he makes a public claim on the world which brings him at odds against the powers of the age. Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed one. It's a royal title. And if he's royal, if he's a king, that's a public figure. And he brings them a kingdom. And that kingdom, again, clashes with the kingdoms of the world. And we see this tension in the contrast between Herod and Jesus and the conflict between Herod and John the Baptist. We spent the past few weeks looking at the parables. And Jesus teaches about how the kingdom of God is like seed that falls in different kinds of soil that produces different results. Or he talks about the kingdom as being uh, like a net that casts over a bunch of fish and then the bad ones are chucked out. Or a field full of wheat and weeds. And at the very end, at the harvest, Jesus burns away all the wheat. So these parables are not just cute little farmer metaphors. They're not just these little stories about going off into heaven with a cloud and a harp. These are parables about gathering and dividing. They are parables about salvation and judgment about power and authority, about life and death. And these parables themselves divide people. Those who have ears to hear and eyes to see are marking themselves out as the people who belong to the kingdom of God. And those who don't are marking themselves as those who are outside. So Jesus comes to divide. He comes to make a public claim, a gospel, good news for the world, which is something that binds all the consciences of all men. So Jesus comes to disrupt the public realm, to make manifest what is hidden, to disclose the hearts of men. And so how we respond to Jesus now matters forever. I remember a story about a pastor who said after service, someone came up to him and said, Preacher, I was with you in your sermon when you were preaching up until you started meddling. And then you lost me. In other words, I liked when you were preaching about abstract theological things and making these points, but as soon as you started to apply it to my life and pointing it for me to change, you lost me. I didn't like that part. You started meddling. But Jesus meddles. That's what he does. It gets him in trouble. His ministry is constantly meddling with people, disrupting the political powers of the age, disrupting the people that he comes in contact with. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, who's the allegory of Christ, he's described not as safe, but good. That's what Jesus is. He is not safe, but he is good. He is the king. 
and he bears royal authority. And that means it's going to meddle with our lives. It's going to meddle with our world. And Matthew links these two narratives, the narrative of John's beheading and Jesus feeding the 5,000 to show a contrast between the authority of King Herod and the authority of King Jesus. And he also shows a continuation between the prophetic power of John the Baptist and the greater prophetic power of Jesus Christ. And this continuity and contrast show the authority of Christ as king and then summons us today in the 21st century right now to obedience, to follow him as the one true king. And I want to look at three ways in which he wields his authority. First, Christ uses his authority to provide moral clarity. Second, he uses his authority to give life. And finally, he uses his authority to bring resurrection. Let's look at that first point. The authority of Christ gives moral clarity. Herod hears a rumor about Jesus' miracles. And he doesn't think it's Jesus. He actually thinks it's John the Baptist returned from the dead to haunt him. And then Matthew gives us a flashback. Why is Herod terrified that John the Baptist has come back from the dead? Well, because he killed John the Baptist. He cut his head off. And the reason he cut his head off is because John the Baptist was rebuking him, saying it's unlawful for you to have your wife. Now, what happened was Herod had divorced his wife in order to marry Herodias, who had divorced her husband for the same reason, who happened to be his brother. It's all, it's a really messy situation. But they have unlawfully divorced one another and unlawfully married. It's an adulterous relationship. And John the Baptist says, you can't do that. He makes a public rebuke to this public figure. Now, Herodias, she didn't like that John the Baptist is saying this stuff. And so she gets in the ear of her husband and says, you know what, you really should take care of this. You should arrest him. And so John the Baptist gets arrested by Herod. But Herod doesn't want to kill John the Baptist because he's afraid of what the crowd's going to think because he knows the people, the common people, view him as a true prophet. And he doesn't want to get canceled. So he says, I'll just keep you in jail. But then his stepdaughter, Herodias' daughter, she does a little dance for him on his birthday. And it pleases him. And so he makes a rash vow and says, I'll give you whatever you want. And Herodias' daughter, under the influence of Herodias, is told, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Right? So Herodias is behind the scenes manipulating things. And Herod basically goes to John the Baptist and says, hey man, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to kill you. Right? Cuts his head off, kills John the Baptist. And so he thinks he's dealt with his problem. He's got wealth, power, authority, and he used that to wipe the slate clean, and he doesn't have to worry about anything. He thinks that all of this insulates him from accountability. And then he hears and thinks that John the Baptist is back. Right? Now, Herod is actually a very insecure ruler. He's called a tetrarch. Matthew calls him a tetrarch. That's basically a subordinate ruler. He's essentially a, a king over Judea. He's a king of Israel of sorts. But he's under Roman occupation, which means that he depends upon the favor of Caesar for everything that he has. So he's in a very tenuous situation. He doesn't have a lot of security in his authority. And when he looks around, he sees all these Roman soldiers in Judea, and it's reminding him that he's accountable to Caesar. But John the Baptist, possibly being alive again, and really what he's fearing is the ministry of Jesus, reminds him that he's accountable to someone even higher than Caesar. He's accountable to God. That he will not get off the hook. 
that all the power and money and prestige that he has cannot evade the judgment of God. And his conscience pricks him. He's haunted. He knows God is on to him. And John the Baptist is a prophet. Prophets serve as God's mouthpiece to the world. You notice, John the Baptist, he condemns Herod, and he doesn't care that he's not a Christian. And he condemns him with the law of God. In other words, he knows that the word of God speaks to everyone. It doesn't matter if you share the same worldview, the same religious beliefs. God is God, and he has spoken. And he calls Herod to account with authority. And if a prophet is a spokesperson for God, if a prophet is somebody who speaks the word of God, is a mouthpiece of God, and he's speaking publicly about Herod's desecration of marriage, of his adultery, then that means God has something public to say about marriage. God created marriage as a public institution. It's ingrained within creation itself. And so John the Baptist speaks against the adultery of Herod because it matters to God. John the Baptist proclaims publicly God's good purpose for marriage. And if it matters to God, it matters to us. It must matter to us. It is a public proclamation. What possessed John to have this boldness? He lived his life with moral clarity. That's what Christ's authority gave him. And in contrast, Herod lives by his own lusts and his love of praise. G.K. Chesterton writes this. He says, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. John the Baptist dies for the sake of righteousness. He has this authority over him that allows him to give up his own life because he knows what is true and good and right. He has moral vision, moral clarity. But Herod, he thinks he's driving his own life. He thinks he's in control. But in reality, he's enslaved to his lusts. He's enslaved to the praise of men. He's enslaved to his bid for power. He's enslaved so that all other people's opinions crowd his mind. He's manipulated by his wife. His wife is the one who comes in and says, you know, you really should take care of this issue. I was thinking about in the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, there's this great line where one of the uh, characters, she's like, you know, the husband is the head of the home, but the wife is the neck. She moves him any way that she wants, right? Not a, not a healthy marriage dynamic, right? But that, there is something there where, where Herod, he has no clarity. He's simply going from thing to thing. He's consumed by his lust, by the opinions of others. He's easily manipulated, But John, by contrast, he has moral conviction. He understands what is true and what is right. When we forsake our allegiance to Christ, we become slaves to the world. When we care, when we deny our obedience to Christ, when we do not care about his opinion, we become slaves to the opinions of others. So we must live with this moral clarity and conviction. I was having a conversation with a friend, I was kind of like, you know, it's crazy. I feel like there's so much moral ambiguity and nobody cares about morality. Nobody has any convictions anymore. And he looked at me, he's like, what are you talking about? The whole radical progressive movement, all the things that are happening, it's filled with moral vigor and a vision of righteousness and a vision of truth and a vision of what is just and right and all these things. It's filled with zeal, evangelistic zeal, and people swarm to it because by human nature, we want moral vision. It's not a matter of 
whether we will have moral vision. It's which moral vision will dominate and direct our lives. Every one of us directs our lives toward what we think is ultimately good. You can't resist that. And here, John the Baptist and Christ, he's providing us a vision of what the true good is, the kingdom of God, the righteousness that we proclaim. And oftentimes the world can put us to shame with moral conviction. But the Apostle Paul writes, he says, the gospel does not merely come in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And it's a question, what moral vision will dominate our churches? What moral vision will dominate our families? We had child dedications recently. And it's not just dedicating your child to the Lord. It's saying that you as parents, and fathers especially, for fathers you have have vowed, you have said to God, I will raise my family to worship you. I will direct them to what is good and true and beautiful and righteous. There is so much at stake with this, and there must be moral clarity in an age of moral chaos. And I actually think that will draw people in. I actually think that that people crave that. They want weight and gravity. And the church has that because we are the pillar of the truth. And we must own that and believe that and walk with that power, the the Holy Spirit-driven power of conviction into the world. So Christ's authority gives moral clarity. Second, Christ's authority gives life. It gives life. It's an amazing moment. You see the insight into our Lord. He hears news of John the Baptist's death, and he jumps in a boat and goes to be by himself. You can imagine the grief. I mean, this is his cousin. This is family. This is someone whom he loved, someone who has died for his sake. You can imagine that grief. I'd want to go be by myself. And then as he gets on the boat, he gets to the shore, and what does he see? A whole crowd of people that have followed him. Now, I would have been annoyed, right? Grief can turn us in on ourselves, and yet it seems in Jesus' grief, he turns outward. And he doesn't shoo the crowds away. He doesn't look at them with disdain, but what does it say? He says that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed the sick. Compassion is filled. The compassion of God is, is, saturates the Old Testament. Listen to Psalm 103, 13 to 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God sees the dust-like fragility of our lives, and it draws them to compassion. It draws them to mercy. You know, Jesus, he sees that crowd. He knows their hearts. He knows a lot of them are going to turn away from him. A lot of them are going to abandon him and betray him. But he doesn't grow bitter. He doesn't protect his heart behind a hard veneer of cynicism. He doesn't find them annoying. But he has compassion and he heals them. Has your heart grown like that? Are you cynical? Do you see through everything? That's not the vision of Christ. He sees them and he has compassion. He sees them in their weakness. He pities them. You know, I, I, sometimes when I talk with parents with little kids, they'll tell me one of the things that draws out their compassion the most is when they, when they have a sick kid, right? And it's crazy. When they're little, they're just like, they're coughing, they're sneezing, they're throwing up, and they don't know what's going on with themselves. And they look at you, you know, with those puppy dog eyes, and then every parent feels that tenderness, 
Why? Because they see the weakness. They, they see their inability to help themselves, and it draws out their compassion. No matter how bad a day you had at work, right? You see them, and it draws forth your compassion. And I like to think that when God sees us in our weakness, in our frailty, that's what comes out of him, is compassion for our weakness, for our dust-like lives. Herod shows false compassion. Jesus, out of compassion, uses his authority to bring life and healing. But Herod, I mean, he looks at John. I mean, he, this is a terrible dude. He looks at him, he's like, sorry, man. I really don't want to do this. But, you know, promises are promises. Am I right? And he just kills him. I mean, he says, I, I made an oath. You know, it's kind of, you know, he's trying to show his integrity. But he's totally corrupt. And he uses his authority to bring death and destruction. But here, Jesus brings life and healing. And Jesus not only brings life, but he, he sustains it as well. And that's the, the whole meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. He takes five loaves and two fish, which is, that's the food of the poor. It's the food of common people, ordinary things. And he blesses the ordinary in an extraordinary way. Isn't that a summary of the Christian life? Right? Ordinary being blessed to be extraordinary. And then he feeds thousands. Just like in the Old Testament, how God, when he led his people out of Egypt, fed them in the wilderness with manna from heaven. Jesus is saying, I'm God in the flesh doing the same. And when God in the Old Testament feeds Israel, he's giving them an alternate meal. He's saying, you are now free people. And I'm the one who liberated you. And I'm the one who feeds you. The one who feeds you is your master. The one who you depend on for bread, that's who dominates your life. You no longer belong to Pharaoh. You belong to me, and I take care of my people. And Jesus is there, and he's saying, don't eat from the table of Herod. I am God. I provide you with bread. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, verse 20 to 23, a group of people, they're afraid of Herod's wrath because he controls their bread. They don't want to make him mad. They even call him like a god. You are the one who sustains us. We have to bow down to Herod. And Jesus says, no. I'm the one who gives bread out of my mercy and kindness. And not only that, but I will give the bread of my own life. My own body will be given for you to free you from your slavery to sin. It's not a figure of speech. This is a statement of reality. God made us dependent upon him. That's what it means to be human. And to the degree that we declare our independence from God is to the degree that we deny our own humanity. We turn away from that which actually gives us life. God is the one who created us and sustains us, and we have nothing apart from him. And I love how God, in his goodness, he doesn't feast in a massive palace with the finest cuisine. He dines with his people with ordinary bread and fish in dirt and grass. That's what God is like. God serves his people with an open hand. Herod, by contrast, lives with a closed fist. He grasps at power, authority, sex, prestige. And because he's always grasping, because his hands are tied so tightly on his sin and the things of the world, he cannot understand the kingdom of God. But Jesus, again, Jesus ministers with an open hand. He feeds the hungry. He opens with generosity toward the world. But his disciples are kind of acting like Herod. You know, they, they're like, Jesus, you want us to boot these people out, shoo away the crowds? They want Jesus for themselves. They want to go, Jesus, I want you to do something for me. And Jesus flips on them and says, actually, I want you to do something for me. These crowds that you want to shoo away, I want you to feed them. I want you to serve them. I want you to open your hands like I do 
and show them grace. Bread in the Bible not only represents the body of Christ, but the body of Christ, the people of God. Matt Colvin, who's a New Testament Greek scholar, he says this, the disciples need to learn that their lives are to be blessed, broken, and given for the life of the world, as was Jesus. The church is not a product to consume. The church is a living body, the living body of the Lord Jesus Christ, sent to serve one another and to serve the world. And we have to embody the compassion of Christ. That's our calling. Jesus Christ puts bread into the hands of the disciples, and then he says, now open your hands and give that bread to others. What God gives to us, he intends that we would bless others with. He calls us to offer up our gifts, our resources, our time, our talents, that he might multiply them. But we're so often distracted and self-absorbed. We want Jesus to fit our agenda and our schedule. We always assume that when we see needs, it's for someone else to take care of, right? I mean, that's my temptation. And Jesus says, no, I want you to give them something to eat. I want you to disciple those students. I want you to pray for that family. I want you to give your money for that cause. That's on you. That's on me. That's on us. We're the body. That's how we manifest the compassion of Christ. That's how we start to see. And what's amazing is he takes our feeble, imperfect efforts, and what does he do? He infuses them with power. He blesses them. He multiplies them. The question is not whether Jesus will multiply, but whether we will provide the loaves and the fish. He is more willing to bless than we are to offer. But if we're Christians, which means little Christ, we must participate in that life-giving. We must open up our hands, our lives, for the service of others. So ask him to show you the needs of those around you. And then ask him to multiply your efforts. That's a dangerous prayer because he will answer it. But what a cool thing that would be. You know, it's a cool thing I see happening in our church. I'm so encouraged. So many people serve quietly. You don't know it, but you see their efforts multiply and bless. You can be part of that. But ask God, what are the needs around me? And Lord, multiply my efforts for your kingdom. Christ's authority brings moral clarity. It brings life. And finally, it brings resurrection. Resurrection. Matthew ends his account with a peculiar detail in verse 20. He says, They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men beside women and children. Very interesting detail. Now, this is actually an allusion to 2 Kings chapter 4, where Elisha, who's a prophet, he multiplies 20 loaves to feed 100 men, and then he promises them leftovers. And the leftovers represent the faithful remnant in Israel. At the time of Elisha's ministry, he is preaching against King Omri, who's this wicked king, and all of Israel has become corrupt, except for this small remnant that's surrounding Elisha. And those who eat this bread are the beginnings of that remnant. And Jesus here reveals himself as the greater Elisha. Twelve loaves, twelve apostles, twelve tribes, a new reconstituted people of God, Israel, is being formed around Jesus Christ. When all of Israel is turning against him, he is building this people of new life, of resurrection, a counter kingdom to the kingdom of Herod. And there's so many more parallels. 
Elisha continues the ministry of Elijah. And remember, John the Baptist calls himself an Elijah. So John the Baptist is a forerunner leading toward the ministry of Jesus, the greater Elisha. And remember, Elijah, when he passes on his ministry, he says, and he gives a double portion of the Spirit to Elisha. Elisha's ministries will be greater in power. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, in his baptism, the, the Spirit, the Spirit uh, empowers him fully. He's walking with the full power of the Spirit. He is the greater Elisha. There's so many other parallels as well. And you can even see the people they're against. Elijah is preaching against evil King Herod, right? Who, behind the scenes, who's kind of moving everything, is Jezebel, Queen Jezebel. And she gets uh, Ahab to go after Elijah, to, to, to go after him with murderous rage. And so you see that similar dynamic with Herod and Herodias. Herod and Herodias are like Ahab and Jezebel, going after God's true prophet. And Jesus is very self-aware of this. He is self-aware in trying to show that he is the greater Elisha. Herod fears John the Baptist's resurrection, but the real resurrection he should fear is Christ's. And what's fascinating is, I love this, when, 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 Eli, when Elisha dies, you know, his body's put in a tomb, and then a, a group of bandits basically throw a dead body next to Elisha, and they touch his bones, and he comes back to life. His death brings resurrection power. Well, that's just a foretaste of the death of Christ. Christ dies, he raises, and he brings resurrection power to all the world. He brings about new creation. This is the power of Jesus Christ at work. And that's what God does. He brings life out of death. There's a prophecy in Isaiah 6, 13 that says, And though a tenth remain in it, in Israel, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. What he's saying is Israel, at the time of Isaiah's writing, they're, they're rebelling against God, everyone's turning away, but there's still going to be a remnant God's always going to preserve a faithful people. And as long as there is that sprout, that seed, there is hope for the future. No matter what chaos, destruction there is. And Jesus Christ is that seed. He's that sprout. Eugene Peterson talks about that verse and he says, imagine a massive forest fire just destroys everything. Everything's ash. This beautiful forest is just turned to ash. But there's this little bud of green. This little sprout. And as long as there's that sprout, there's hope for the forest to return. And Jesus Christ is that sprout, the root of Jesse, the one who, through him, new creation comes. All the fallenness of the world will be renewed through him. And it will come not merely by just a magic display of power, but slowly, like a mustard seed that becomes a tree. And it's going to come through his people. Alistair Roberts notes that every time men are counted apart from women, and children, it's to mark out a holy army. And that's what's happening here. Those who receive Christ as the bread of life become part of his new people, bringing about and proclaiming the new kingdom, the restoration of all things. And he baptizes us with the Spirit at Pentecost to empower and equip us to do that, to proclaim the resurrection, to proclaim this power that has been unleashed into the world through the work of of Christ. But you have to note the pattern. This is important. It's death, then resurrection. Cross, then glory. John the Baptist doesn't get carried into heaven with chariots of fire like Elijah. He gets his head cut off. And that's a prefiguring of Jesus who's going to die at the hands of lawless men. Jesus Christ is going to be crucified. The shameful death of a criminal. Imagine the scene. 
the disciples carrying the decapitated body of John the Baptist to the tomb. And then imagine the disciples later on carrying the bloodied body of Christ to the tomb. You think everything's lost. It's over. This is what the powers of the world do. And it leads to resurrection. It is the death that leads to the great victory of God over all the powers of darkness and evil in the world. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we don't just eat bread, we drink the cup that represents his blood. There is no giving of the bread of life without the shedding of blood. And we have to prepare ourselves to walk that path, to pick up our cross and follow him. Because that's the pattern for our lives, death and resurrection. And this requires absolute allegiance. We cannot serve God and money. You cannot eat at Herod's table and the table of Christ. All our idols must go. They must all die. We must die to ourselves, our idols of comfort, status, work, respectability. And we have to ask hard questions of ourselves. Are we stewards or slaves of our money? Does fear of man prevent us from telling the truth? Does Christ master our time? Or do our phones master our time? It's a personal hurt. Does fear of man cause us to turn away from the good work that we're supposed to do? Do we idolize our feelings over the word of God? Are our careers the only sacred cow that cannot be touched, even by Jesus. Sorry, I'm meddling. I should get back to preaching. These are the hard questions we have to ask ourselves. But it's not in a condemning way. It's to call us to something greater. God calls us to die in order to raise us to something new. That's the invitation to all of us. And we know this because he himself died that we might live. He himself died and rose again to everlasting life. And that's what Advent celebrates the coming of our king, the ultimate authority, an authority who came into this world as a baby boy in a manger, who dies this humiliating death and then rises again as king of all creation. That's the story that we celebrate. And he gives us moral clarity, life, and resurrection. That's the gospel, the good news for all people. And that resurrection power is coursing through us, the great hope that nothing is the, that the death and sin is not the end. That there's a hope on the other side of the grave. That sin is not the last word on our lives. That's good news. Kind of makes you want to sing, doesn't it? I don't like to market things. But let's sing about that next week. Let's sing about that at Lessons and Carols. I mean, isn't that a reason enough? Let's make a memory for your kids so they grow up always knowing what Christmas is really about. And when they think about Christmas, they think about the singing of the saints, the reading of the Word of God. They think about Christ. What a glorious vision. And I kind of hope people in our neighborhood start wondering, what are they doing in there? What are they singing about? What's going on in that weird building with pink windows on A Street? And you can tell them, it's new creation. It's resurrection. It's a celebration of good news for all people. It's a foretaste of deliverance. It's the love of God being manifest to the people of God. And you can tell them, by the way, you're invited. There's a lot of room at the table, 
and plenty of bread. Let's pray.